Well, hello, and I welcome you to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today we're looking at Galatians, the third chapter, where Paul will be talking with the Galatian church about what it is to truly be justified by faith and how that doesn't come by the law. We'll dig into these passages. I encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast on the previous two chapters to kind of set the stage for where we're at right now. Before we dig into the text, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Please join me. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the many blessings that you give us. We thank you for your provision for us. And Father, most of all, we thank you for Christ, for the salvation that he brings through your grace and your mercy and your love for us and his atoning work on the cross. Father, we thank you that you have included us with him as your children as we place our faith in him and find the forgiveness for our sins and find true righteousness in your eyes. Now, Father, we lift up this world and its leaders, knowing that they do not all acknowledge you as God, but, Father, knowing that you are in charge. We ask that you would guide their decisions, that you would grant them wisdom that goes beyond their years and experience. And, Father, that they would come to know you and experience the blessing of being used by you for your purposes. We know that they serve at your pleasure and that they carry out your planned purposes. But Father, we pray that they would acknowledge you and receive blessing in following you. Now, Lord, as we turn our attention to the text, Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart responsive to your spirit that we would glean from this text what you have for us, that it would help us to grow in our faith and obedience to you. Father, we thank you for all these many gifts. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ and for the forgiveness of our sins. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we begin looking at the third chapter of Galatians, just a quick reminder, Paul is addressing this issue that is developed in the Galatian church. He shared the true gospel with them. They responded, but now false teachers have come in, what we later come to call Judaizers, those that that taught Christians that, yes, you're a Christian, but to really be right with God, to really follow God, you have to adhere to all the Jewish laws and regulations and the one that gets pointed out most readily in this passage is circumcision um, as, as one of the clear evidences that you are adhering to this Jewish law. And only by doing that can you really be right with God. It becomes a saved by grace through faith in Christ and type of a theology. And Paul is really just laying into that. He's, he's pointing out how foolish it is. In fact, chapter three starts this way. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has cast an evil spell on you? Now, he's not posing the idea of witchcraft here. He's talking about a, a false teaching that has led them away from the truth. Ergo, it's evil. Who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. 
So he's saying, look, when we presented the gospel to you, it was so clear. It was like you were watching it happen, you know, like you saw a picture of it. Let me ask you this one question, Paul says. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. So he's referring them back again. You heard the gospel, clear presentation of Christ, his sacrifice on the cross, and on turning to faith in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. So he's drawing them back. Remember that. Did that have anything to do with following the Jewish law, the law of Moses? He's saying, of course not. Oh, verse 3, how foolish can you be? After starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human efforts? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It's because you believe the message you heard about Christ. So Paul is just making it very clear. Look, it is either the law or faith in Christ. And he's drawing them back to their own experience with the gospel of Christ, their own experience in their relationship with the Lord and saying, okay, here's some key points. Salvation. Was that the law or was it the message of the gospel? Well, obviously, it was the message of the gospel. Okay, next step, the Holy Spirit. Was that because of the law or the message of the gospel? Well, message of the gospel. Okay, next step, your life as the church. God has done miracles in your midst. Was that because of the law or because of God's grace as shared through the gospel? Well, again, the answer, gospel. So Paul's pointing these things out to them and asking them pretty bluntly. Well, actually, he's just calling them fools because they've foolishly left behind the gospel in pursuit of the law. And he's, he's pointed out all these instances where they had to answer, well, it was, it was Christ. It was the gospel. It was God's grace, not the law. So he can bring them to the point of going, then why are you pursuing the law? pointing out how ridiculous that idea is. And yet there is something in us as humanity that does just that, isn't there? We know we're saved by God's grace. We know we have freedom in Christ, and yet we love lists of rules. I'm convinced personally that the reason we like lists of rules is it makes us feel good. But by the same token, it makes us feel bad. Isn't that kind of weird? We like a checklist because then we can check off the list and go, yeah, look at how much I got. Look at what I got done or look at what I did right or look at what I didn't do that I wasn't supposed to do, you know, the don't list. What we forget is there's the other part of the list. We look at all that stuff we got right and we ignore all that stuff we got wrong. It's that stuff that got that we got wrong that's the problem. And he gets into explaining the law and what it's all about in a little bit. So I'm going to hold that thought and come back to it in just a few minutes. 
Now, as we pick up in verse 6, he starts talking about Abraham and the faith of Abraham. And this is a very significant passage of Scripture. Uh, There are those out there in the religious world today, even in certain veins of the Christian church, that that really advocate for, um, well, for the nation of Israel, for the Jewish people, and almost want to run a, a dual track of salvation. You know, there's salvation that's for the Jews, and then there's the rest of us. Like, it's different. Well, that's pretty well laid out in Scripture right here for everyone. So let's look at it. Verse 6 of chapter 3. In the same way, Abraham believed God. Now, notice, in the same way. Same way as what? The same way as the Galatian church came to faith in Christ. In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, ooh, there's a loaded term, verse 7, the real children of Abraham, then are those who put their faith in God, who are the children of Abraham. Now, there's two answers you can give. Well, the Jewish people. That's not the answer Paul gives. Paul says the real children of Abraham are those who put their faith in God. No matter what your lineage is, if you do not place your faith in God, you are not a real child of Abraham. Jesus had some stuff to say about that too. Go back and read the Gospels. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. God, let me try that in English. God proclaimed, there we go, this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing, the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. There it is. Faith is is the key. Not just faith. You know, I've I've been to the stores. I've seen the plaques that they sell. Faith. Or you see the poster, have faith. Um, That faith has to be directed somewhere. If you have not placed your faith in God through Christ, your faith is worthless. In fact, James, in his letter to the church, talks about worthless faith, too, that you can claim to have faith in God and Christ, but if you don't actually do anything with that faith, it is also worthless. This is a living faith that forms the the core of your worldview, the core of your life choices, your actions, your speaking. It is essential to who you are in Christ. That kind of faith. So it is faith in God through Christ. That is the kind of faith Abraham had. That's the kind of faith the Galatians had, and they were being led away from that. And this is all a a very stark warning and call to return for the church. In verse 10, Paul picks up with the idea of faith versus the law and what the function of the law is. In fact, in a little bit, he's going to be defending the law. 
uh, because he wants to make it clear that he's not trying to just completely discount the law. He's just trying to put it in its proper boundaries. It's not a bad thing. It has a job to do in each of our lives and in our world, but that job is not salvation. Salvation, that's Christ. So let's pick up in verse 10. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scripture says, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all. Can I repeat that word? All the commands that were written in God's book of the law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scripture says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. That would be the way of the law. Um, the, the clear distinction Paul's making here between faith and the law, he uses Abraham who predated the Mosaic law, by what, some 430 years? It's saying, look, Abraham, he was made right with God, and it was by faith, not law. And we can be united with Abraham. We can be descendants of Abraham through our belief in God, through trusting in through faith in Christ. We can do that. But if we decide that we're going to live our lives to be justified to God, to be right with God, by our obedience to the law, we will spend our lives trying, his words, trying to keep the law. If you're trying to keep the law, I would argue that it's pretty clear you're not actually keeping the law. You're just giving it your best shot. There's going to be stuff you miss. You're going to mess up. You're going to oversleep. I don't know, whatever. Uh, you're not going to perfectly live the law. Now, you know, here in, in church services, I often point out to folks, you know, let's do a little mental exercise here. Let's think of the Ten Commandments. I won't ask you to name them because, it, well, it gets embarrassing when I ask people to name all Ten Commandments. You get some interesting new ones. Um, but just think of what you can remember of the Ten Commandments. Have you, your entire life, have you followed those Ten Commandments without ever violating one of them? Now, I'm guessing the answer is no, you have not been able to live your entire life without ever violating one of them. And if you're sitting there going, oh, I've never violated any, I will remind you bearing false witness is one of them. So, um, yeah, you're in the camp. We're all guilty of breaking the law. Well, what's that mean? It means no matter how hard we try to be justified by the law, we will never be perfect under the law. Therefore, we are not justified by it. We are declared guilty by it, or as Paul phrased it in this passage, cursed by it, condemned by it. Because the law does not save us. It shows us our guilt. It can't save us. It was never meant to save us. 
It was meant to show us our sin and point us to a Savior. Those are my words, not his. Let's look at his words. Again, in verse 12, this way of faith is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The idea there is that a person that is crucified is is displaying their shame and their sin publicly. And so cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. So was Christ cursed when he was crucified? Yeah, he was cursed with all of our sin, all of our breaking of the law, not his own. He never broke it. Through Christ Jesus, verse 14, through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Hmm. Powerful words. Through Christ, we Gentiles receive the same blessing that he promised to Abraham. What was that blessing he promised to Abraham? That he would be a blessing to all nations? What's that about? And we can look at other promises made to Abraham. It's about Christ. It was about the coming Messiah, the one who would save the world, atone for the sins of the whole world. That's the blessing. We have received that same blessing. So that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. It's all about Christ. He didn't know the name or the time or exactly how it would go down. But even for Abraham, it was God will provide a sacrifice. God will redeem. He placed his faith in God. And it is through that faith that salvation came, that he was made right with God. All right, in verse 15, Paul changes gears a little, but he's still talking about the difference between the law and God's promise, and specifically God's promise to Abraham. And he says these words, Dear brothers and sisters, here is an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. What sort of irrevocable agreement? Well, he's talking basically in terms like the, uh, like we would think of a will. I have a will. Upon my death, that will takes effect. After I'm dead, can anybody change my will legally? No, they can't. It is an irrevocable agreement. The tenets of my will have to be carried out. They're binding and cannot be altered at that point. And so Paul is saying, just as no one can set aside or ignore or or change an irrevocable agreement, 
So it is in this case. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. Well, who is the child? Well, it's Christ, okay? We'll get to that. And notice that the scriptures, that scripture doesn't say to his children, it says to his child is what Paul is emphasizing. As if it meant many descendants. You know, it doesn't say children as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child. And that, of course, means Christ. Now, this isn't Brother Scott's opinion on it. This is what the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote as Scripture. Directed at the church of Galatia, who was getting off base. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. And notice, uh, oh, you may go, well, in some translation it doesn't say child. No, it says seed, as opposed to seeds. Uh, the singular and plural is kind of significant. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child. And that, of course, means Christ. So who is the child of Abraham? Christ. This is what I am trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Now, understand, if you go back and read oh, around the 15th chapter of Genesis, you're going to see where God establishes his covenant promises with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And in it, Abraham has a vision, and there's, there's this livestock that's been cut in half and separated, and a torch passes through, and God pronounces these promises. And to us, it's all kind of weird and kind of freaky, and you know, you're thinking fire and livestock cut in half. This ought to be a barbecue, but it's not. All of that was a joke, by the way. All of that was God establishing a promise, a covenant, a contract with Abraham. But the significance of that torch representing the presence of God passing between the halves, in that day and age, that's how they did a contract. And it basically said, if I violate this contract, then let this happen to me and all my stuff. Uh, it Normally, both parties would pass between, but that's not what happened in Genesis. God passed through, making a one-sided agreement with Abraham. How does Abraham appropriate that agreement? Faith. But it is a promise from God to Abraham and his child, Jesus. On the other side of that, 430 years later, Mount Sinai, you have the law, the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law, 600 and some odd rules contained in it. The Mosaic law, the covenant, clearly stipulates, if you obey me, if you follow my commands, then these things will happen. If you do not follow me and obey my commands, then these things will happen to you, or these other things will not happen, like your crops won't produce and you won't get rain. And 
You won't be protected from other nations invading and all of these types of things. We see that played out through the remainder of the Old Testament from, from the time of Moses on. That the covenant had terms and conditions, and it was contingent upon adhering to the law to receive the benefits, violating the law, receiving the punishments. And Paul's saying, that's not what you want. Centuries before that, God made a promise, and his promise never became void. His promise never became ineffective or, or no longer applicable. The law is something different than what was given to Abraham. So, verse 18 again. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Now in verse 19, he goes on and says, Why then was the law given? You know, if we had that promise, why do we need the law? He says, it was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. So the law has a purpose. It's to show us our sin. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. So again, drawing a distinction, you've got that, or Paul's pointing out there that the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law was a contract between God and the people. But what you've got in the Abrahamic covenant, his promise to Abraham, was one-sided. It wasn't between God and the people, or God and the world, or God, it was God's promise to Abraham. And by extension, the world. It would have ramifications, effects on the world. 21. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Because we've got Abraham, that promise. We've got Moses and that law. Is there a conflict there? Well, remember what he's already said? Why was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. If the promise to Abraham is salvation, and the law from Moses is to show us our sin, that is, show us our need for a Savior, are these things in conflict? So again, 21, is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not, he says. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. 
Wouldn't it be awesome if we could just follow the law and receive new life, except nowhere in Scripture do we find obedience to the law bringing new life. In fact, trying to live in obedience to the law just points out that we are sinners. We're prisoners of sin. So our only option for new life is that promise of God. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 23, Paul begins this last section of the third chapter. And he talks more about what it is to be children of God through faith. He says, Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. What's he mean by that? He means that the law showed us what righteousness was. We couldn't attain it, but it kept us in check. It made us aware of who God's who God is, what his nature and character looked like, what out of bounds was, that it wasn't okay to do all these things, that there was right and wrong, and by the way, still is right and wrong. It worked as a guardian in our lives, keeping us in protective custody, as he says, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. In verse 24, he says, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. So it has its purpose. The law has its function to show us we need the Savior. But once the Savior comes, we don't need the law. Does it negate the law? No, it's just not necessary. If you grew up with a guardian, even if that guardian was your parent, there came a point in your life where you became, if I'm talking to adults here, you became an adult. Or if I'm talking to, to youth or children, then you will become an adult. At that point, you're still going to have parents. You will still have someone who was your guardian. But you're an adult now. There's a transition that takes place. He's saying the law served its purpose in our lives, kind of like a guardian serves its purpose in your life. But then you reach a point where you come to faith in Christ, you no longer need that guardian. You have transitioned to something else. Now, remember, he's talking to Galatians, who are, being, who are believers, who are being led astray by this idea that they must be enslaved to the law, that they're not phrasing it enslaved to the law, but Paul's making it clear that's exactly what's happening, that they have to obey the law if they're going to be right with God. He's telling them, look, you've outgrown that. You've moved on from living under the law of Moses to living under the covenant promises that were made to Abraham. You don't need the guardian anymore. You don't need to be in protective custody anymore. You've moved forward. So again, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. 
And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Verse 26, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. How do we become children of God? Through faith in Christ Jesus. My family is sick of me at Christmas time because, you know, what is that song? Um, is it Here Comes Santa Claus? I don't remember. One, one of the popular secular Christmas songs has a lyric in it that just grates on me every time. Uh, Santa knows we're all God's children and that makes everything right. You know, I'm not even going to get into the whole Santa Jesus thing, but seriously, we're not all God's children. We're all God's creation, but we are not all his children. Only those who have come to faith through Jesus Christ are the children of God. The rest aren't. I'd like to say aren't yet. My optimistic side says aren't yet. My hope is they will one day come to faith in Christ. Well, verse 26 again. For you, talking to the Galatian church, for you are all children of God through faith in Jesus or in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. In other words, baptism being that that thing that symbolizes our old sinful self being laid to rest in the grave and us rising with new life in Christ. We are new creations in Christ. He says that's, that's like we take off the old stuff and we put on the new. We look different. We feel different. Verse 28, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I want to unpack that verse. I think it gets ripped out of context a little too much. Um, Let's go through these categories, things that were, were dividing life at that point in time in the world. Jew or Gentile. Well, you had this whole issue of Gentiles that had come to faith in Christ and the Judaizers arguing that, no, they had to become Jewish as well as Christians to be real Christians. There was definitely a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Paul's going, look, this whole argument has made it abundantly clear. It's it's faith in God. It's the promise given to Abraham and there is no Jew or Gentile, okay? It's not whether I live, I'm saved under the law of Moses or I'm saved by the promise to Abraham. We're all saved by the promise to Abraham. The law of Moses was to show us our sin and need for a savior. So that one's off the table. Slave or free, it doesn't matter what your situation in this life is. Your standing with God is based on what? Faith, faith in Christ. That's where it comes from. That's the foundation for it. So it doesn't matter if you're a freedman or a slave or a slave owner. or a, It doesn't matter your, your socioeconomic status in life, your class status in life. It doesn't matter. 
Doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, excuse me, Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. The next one doesn't matter if you're male or female. What about that one? That's a loaded one these days. Understand in the first century world, there was a tremendous difference in standing, in, in ownership of property, in perceived value by society between men and women. So it was pretty radical for Paul to say, look, you know, as you're standing before God for salvation, it's not about whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. It's not about whether you're a slave or a free person. It's not about whether you're a man or a woman. What he's really saying is it's all about you're a human in need of a savior. Have you turned to faith in Christ? If you have, you are saved and you are a child of God. That is, there's two categories of people. Those that are saved and those that are lost. All the other categories that we want to draw, they're not right. They're meaningless stuff. And so he makes that clear. Now, does that mean, and this is where we kick the hornet's nest a little bit, does that mean that there's no difference between men and women? Well, duh, there's a huge difference between men and women. That's not saying that one is more capable than the other or less capable than the other. We are different from each other, thankfully. Guys, we need women. Women, you need guys around. Because we both reflect aspects of God. We were created in his image. Male and female, he made them. Ladies, there's something about you that reflects who God is. And a few different aspects of who God is than the things about us guys that reflect who God is. Now, do we all have the same roles in life or in church or or any of that? Well, even among the same gender, we don't all have the same roles in life or in church or in, in service in the kingdom. So what is it God's calling you to do? Focus on that. Because you have open relationship with the Father. Because you regardless of gender, regardless of socioeconomic standing, regardless of ethnic background, you are saved through faith in Christ, through the grace of God, through God's promise, you've been saved. And you have gained the right to be called the children of God. Again, verse 26, for you are all children of God through faith in Jesus, or excuse me, in Christ Jesus. All. So we don't need to step in and go, well, yes, but if. You're saved if. No. How are we saved? Through faith in Christ Jesus. And that makes us all 
children of God. The Galatian church was falling into the trap of saying, yes, but you also have to. And Paul's overwhelming response is, that's foolish. And as a matter of fact, no, you don't have to. Even good stuff like the law of Moses. Hey, obeying the law of Moses is not a bad thing. Except we all fail to do it. And we can fall into the trap of thinking that obeying the law of Moses will make us right with God. And that's just the opposite of its purpose. Well, let's finish this chapter. Verse 29. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. I don't think I need to elaborate on that. Verse 29 is pretty straightforward, isn't it? And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this awesome gift. The gift you have given us of your grace and mercy of salvation through Christ. The gift of the ability to turn to you in faith and receive salvation. To be made right with you. When we haven't earned it. And we can't earn it. God, we thank you that we are saved. We're saved by your promise to Abraham. That we have become your heirs. And that promise belongs to us as well. That we are yours. By your work. By your grace. We thank you, Father. Help us to live out of that perspective. To not fall into the trap of the law. But to see the law as something that guided us and showed us our need. brought us to the point of responding to you, receiving your grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.